This is a talk by Joel titled Transforming Emotions 4, Pride and Envy, recorded October 2009 at the Cloud Mountain Retreat Center in Castle Rock, Washington. Anybody else have anything to report about the, the meditations from yesterday before we move on? Um, would you clarify what you said last night about how the transforming emotions can only happen in the moment? I mean, I understand that in essence, but does that also mean, for instance, the practices that we did yesterday of bringing up, say, a desire, that that hasn't really transformed that specific object of desire? First of all, I wish there was a better way to put it. The reason I keep talking about transformation is because I'm following the teachings as they're presented in translation into English of these Tibetan practices. Sometimes you read transmuting. To me, that's even worse. That has even this alchemical idea that you're going to do something. But it's really important to keep in mind that transforming takes place only through seeing. So it can't happen unless, or let me say this, experiencing better than seeing even, It can't happen unless that emotion is there, right there, in the moment to be experienced. But just because the emotion is there doesn't mean it's automatically transformed. doesn't mean we automatically have an insight into its true nature. That's a prerequisite for having the insight. It must be there. We might have an intellectual insight, but that's not really going to transform the experience of the emotion. We might understand how desire could really be based on compassion, intellectually. But when desire arises again, that's not going to make us experience it as compassion. So we have to continue to bring these emotions in our formal practice to arouse them. And then in our daily lives, we just want to be mindful when they are aroused. We won't have to do that much to arouse them all day long. They'll be stimulus arousing them. Then the transforming comes. Let me give you an analogy. In the Hindu tradition, they have this analogy to describe how ultimate realization works. And the story is, you're walking along a path and you suddenly see a coiled snake, cobra, on the side of the path. You jump back because it's poisonous and you start to run away. But then you get the idea to go look again. Are you sure that that's what you saw? And you go back and you look, and you see it wasn't a cobra, it's just a coiled piece of rope. So there are two aspects of the story at this point. First of all, seeing the truth of the situation relieves your fear. You're no longer afraid of the rope. You were afraid of the cobra, but you're not afraid of the rope. So that's how realization relieves your suffering. The other part of it, though, is that actually, from the ultimate point of view, nothing's really changed. There was no cobra there in the first place. So we wouldn't really say the cobra transformed into a rope. Do you see what I'm talking about? We might describe it as, to me, that's how it happened. At first it looked like a cobra, and right before my eyes it transformed into rope. But no real transformation ever took place. But, and this is the last part of this, you might go back and uh, look at that cobra and still not see the rope. And you might go back and look again, you're still seeing a cobra. 
The, the illusion is still in place. So you cannot see the rope until the illusion of the cobra is gone. Then you can see the rope. So what we're doing here is looking at these emotions and we're seeing a cobra. We're seeing an afflicted emotion. We're seeing a, a source of suffering. And we want to look again, again, again until we see the rope. Oh, it's not a cobra after all. In fact, ropes are very useful. You can pick up a rope and you can, you know, mend things with it, tie things up, use it to drop a bucket in a well and draw up water. And there are all kinds of good things you can do with a rope that you couldn't do with a cobra. Well, that's why it's a wisdom energy, that once you see its true nature, you can use it appropriately. I, I don't know, is that helpful? Yes. Uh, I want to go back to something that well, what Lewis brought up last night was that to reach the um, spacious awareness, you know, you have to put put a, you can't have this um, gross excitement to get to that stage. So, but then once I found that you know, once I was in the spacious awareness, the generating the passion for it, I was looking at hatred. It can come. It's artificial. Right. But you said that, you know, in a real situation, you would just drop the story off and have that, you know, hatred or whatever the emotion was. Is it possible during this practice, if, you know, we have something that's, you know, really keen on uh, um, experiencing, just to go ahead and experience it and then drop the story off rather than go all the way to the stage of consciousness? Good question. I emphasize cultivating the spacious awareness because for most people, if you really allow yourself to experience, you know, you were working with... Uh, okay, so that can turn into a real rage. It did. Good, <laughs> good, no. But if you... Well, actually it did. In fact, just this morning I had, had, had that an example. You know, I had a fantasize and I had a rage. And I, and, but by the time I tried to apply this, it had already gone, and, and uh, then I was thinking, well, this is, you know, mere wisdom, you know, and, and it was thought. Yeah. Right. Um, but this is a tricky balance of refinements of the practice. I emphasize creating a spacious awareness because otherwise people can be quite easily overwhelmed if it turns into a real rage, and then be lost for a while and be extremely uncomfortable and not want to come back and do the practice. So if you had this kind of spaciousness, and you then experience the rage, you experience it as not just bearable, but that it won't ultimately cause any harm. But you're right, and once you're in spacious awareness, you can be feeling you know, pretty good. It's hard to work up a, a strong emotion. So it's a balancing act. And certainly when we are in the heat of the moment in our relationships in everyday life, we're not necessarily in any spacious awareness and these emotions come up and we want to be able to do this practice. It does help in everyday life if we're doing some meditative practice and cultivating just a more general spacious mindfulness throughout the day. That helps enormously for us to be able to do that. So this is something that as we go, you have to adjust for yourself. And if you do discover, either in the practice or in your regular life, you are experiencing, let's say, rage, 
And from doing this practice, you realize it's being generated by a story, and you then let the story self-liberate, the thoughts self-liberate, very often the emotion will evaporate almost immediately. Yeah, that's what happens. Okay. There's something to learn from that, and that is how much that emotion depended on the story, how insubstantial it actually was, even though it felt so, you know, searing that, boy, you take away the story and uh, there's nothing left there. And that's not a bad thing to do if you are, feel like you're going to act out on this rage and you want to pull the plug on it, you know what I mean? But we want something else here. We actually are trying to have the rage linger on a little bit, just the energy, the feeling of it, so that we can experience it without the story. And again, that just takes practice and it takes a little finesse and maybe you have to learn to play in there a little bit. So I start to let the story go and then turn my attention on to the feeling itself, but then the feeling starts to die. Maybe I have to crank up the story a little bit to stoke it, you know what I mean? And if I'm skillful, I'll be able to even have the story going and and not be focused on the story, just be focused on the emotion. So I'm teaching this at a beginning level in stark terms, and then you take it, and once you get the gist of it, you refine it to suit your needs. Okay. So this morning, we are going to try to transform afflicted pride by seeing that its true nature is the wisdom of selfless equanimity. And this is, again, what Longchenpa says about it. Boasting that I am better than others is ordinary pride. By recognizing it, one realizes non-duality and equalness. It is the primordial wisdom of equanimity. So normally pride gives rise to boasting and all that, but we are misunderstanding what that emotion is. If we recognize its true nature, then we see that it is the primordial wisdom of equanimity. So, even under delusion, we can get a certain sense of the wisdom when we experience pride. And usually we experience pride when we've accomplished something well and people admire us for it. And temporarily there, there is nothing more for us to do. We relax our effort. The job was well done, you know, everybody congratulates us, maybe we get a raise, you know, whatever. And we let go of that grasping and that pushing away just temporarily, and we bask in this pride. And pride usually feels good to us in this circumstance. What makes it feel good? We've let go of the grasping and the pushing away. We've let go of the effort. We've arrived somehow, at least for a moment. Now, it's true that under delusion, first of all, afflicted pride magnifies the sense of I. So usually our focus is on not a job well accomplished, but I accomplished the job well. So it magnifies the experience of I, and just because of it, it's very, very vulnerable to being popped. So if someone comes along and you're feeling all this pride, 
And someone says, oh, oh, wait a minute. No, actually, you did this wrong. This is a disaster. We have to do it all over again. (laughs) All the air goes out of the balloon. But nevertheless, it's still teaching us something about this business of letting go of effort, of the grasping or the pushing away. Just in that few moments, or maybe it lasts for a day or so, we're not looking ahead to the next thing we have to do or whatever, we're just basking in that pride. It's just quite wonderful. So, if we liberate this pride by recognizing its true nature, then instead of owning the accomplishment which sparked it, as belonging to me, that I did it, we recognize that all activity is the activity of Buddha mind or God or consciousness itself or whatever. And we still have the surrender of effort. We don't own this. We didn't do it. So there's no grasping. There's no holding on to it. There's no owning. And so right in that space, there's this equanimity. So whether it was successful or not successful isn't our problem. Here's how the Bhagavad Gita describes this kind of equanimity. Pleased by whatever comes his way, outside the realm of opposites, free from selfishness, even-minded in success and failure, even when he acts, his acts do not imprison him. They don't imprison us because we don't own them. We have a right to the action, but not the fruit. And it's uh, a wonderful teaching, especially for people living a householder's life, an active, busy life. If you're going to be in the world, you have to be active. You've got responsibilities, you've got duties, you've got all this kind of stuff. That's fine. That's not the problem. It's our owning the result. And the attachment to the fruit, to the result, is what causes our suffering. So we can get some idea of this selfless equanimity because I think most of us, there's some moments in life where we arrive at this not because we've accomplished something great, but because actually we come to a place where at least at that juncture in our lives we realize It's completely out of our hands. Our fate is not in our hands. There is absolutely nothing to do here. I heard this contemporary Sufi author, philosopher, uh, Sayyid Hussan Nasser, describe once. I'm not sure whether it's on a video we have or at this conference Jennifer and I went to 10 years ago or so. Anyway, he had to flee Iran after the Iranian revolution. He had worked at a university uh, under the Shah or something. He was not pro-Shah, but nevertheless, he was not in favor with the Revolutionary Guards either. So it happened quite quickly, and he grabbed his family, and they rushed to the airport, and they got on a plane, and they flew to London, and he had to leave everything behind. I mean, literally, they had the you know clothes in their back and one or two suitcases or whatever, and just suddenly, if you can imagine, your whole life you have to leave behind, and you can never go back, or at least not for many years. And he arrived in London, and... He said he was standing there in the terminal and he had absolutely no idea what was going to happen next. And he also had this realization it wasn't in his hands. And he described this perfect calm that he had, this perfect peace. His mind 
have ceased to plan, ceased to worry, ceased to do all these things. And there was this selfless equanimity, not a self-centered equanimity based on something great he'd done, but actually a surrendered equanimity. It was came from this total surrender. Yes? observation. And also very astute observation that, again, I present these as very clear-cut emotions, but you could be angry at someone for treating you that way, but you look deeper and you see the basis of that is because you have this image of yourself as being superior or special or whatever. And so, yes, that certainly is a manifestation of pride. And it's not based on some necessarily accomplishment. The accomplishment is you. (laughs) You know, People don't recognize how great I am. I mean, it's too bad. (laughs) So, yes, I don't mean to to indicate, you know, that only we feel pride when we've done something concrete or accomplished something. I'm just, I'm trying to give you as vivid and concrete examples of it as I can. Does that make sense? Okay, so... um, The trick is then, of course, with all these emotions, that we have to be able to arouse the emotion, we have to have the emotion present, and then we allow the thoughts about it, oh, my accomplishment or whatever it was, to self-liberate and then look directly into the emotion, feel directly into the emotion. And here's what Lady Soigel says again. I love her, she's ferocious. Know that pride and vain complacency are awareness of sameness. Primal purity and meditative composure cannot be found except in an ambitious mind that believes itself supreme. Look into natural purity and there is a fountain of jewels. Radhanasambhava, Buddha of spiritual wealth. Okay, let's practice. I'm going to guide you through one round, as I've been doing. We'll have a little pee meditation. Uh, You'll get to go and experience some pride in your poop and things like that. (laughs) And there are certain schools of psychology where that's important. (laughs) The old Freudian schools, anyway. And then we'll come back and practice on our own here. So, what? I hadn't thought about it. Uh, off the top of my head, I would say yes, shame is probably the flip side of pride. Just like sorrow is the flip side of desire. Good observation. I didn't actually. Insecurity. Insecurity, probably, yeah. Okay. So the first thing now, just remember, you have to think of a 
situation or accomplishment or something else if you want, something that will arouse the actual feeling of pride and remember our precepts. And I would actually use integrity for this because integrity is not to take what does not belong to me. And usually pride is based on taking something that doesn't belong to you, an accomplishment, an identity, whatever. Okay? So, here we go. So we'll begin by concentrating on our breath or other meditation object. Now allow attention to expand into the field of bodily sensations. Allow attention to expand to include the auditory field, all the sounds arising and passing.
if any smells or tastes present themselves, become aware of their arising and passing. attention to expand out into the visual field. Becoming aware of sights and visual phenomena. Attention to expand to include mental phenomena, memories, images, attention to expand evenly to the total field of consciousness awareness. After you detect any effort to hold attention still, surrender that effort and relax into the boundless, vast sky of spacious awareness. Now close your eyes and recall as vividly as possible some accomplishment or situation 
which caused you to be very proud. Remember it in detail until a strong feeling of pride arises. Allow the memory and the thoughts that cause this pride to arise to self-liberate. Focus attention on the feeling itself. Where in the body do you feel it? Chest, stomach, head. If you feel it's constricted in any way, Relax the constriction and allow it to fill the body-mind. attention on the pure energy of that feeling. See if you can recognize it as selfless equanimity.
allow that feeling to gently dissolve back into the spacious awareness from which it came. Open your eyes and rest for a few moments in this spacious awareness. If you wish to follow our format, stop your player now and practice these instructions. When you've familiarized yourself with these instructions, start your player again and continue with the program. Was anybody able to generate some pride here? Yes? And were you able to let the thoughts go? Could you get a sense of what it might be like to have that feeling without any eye in it? Yes. Good. Yes? What, what amazed me was when I was thinking of equanimity, I had always previously thought of equanimity as sort of, like it doesn't matter what I have, like if you're a floor mat, you know, somebody steps on you, it doesn't matter, it doesn't hurt you, but the format I would think of would be kind of spongy, so if somebody stepped on it, it would, it would not hurt them either, they wouldn't even notice. But I felt there was a strength to it, like not stepping on a spongy format, but stepping on a rock. Like there was this, this solidity, this strength that was there that I never expected I was going to experience. Wow. Very interesting that your mind came up with that image to express that. In the Tibetan tradition, these emotions are associated with various elements, and earth is the element that pride is associated with. The solidity of earth. True solidity, not a solidity that can be broken, but it's like the ultimate solidity. Okay, so any other questions about pride before we move on to envy? Yes? Is there a place in there for false pride? 
Well, in a certain sense, from a mystic's point of view, all pride is false pride. Uh, if it's my pride, it's all false pride. Now, let me add this. There are times where uh, pride could be a remedial emotion that you'd want to use to counteract an extreme of the other sort. And so I'm not saying it would never be helpful for someone to feel pride. A kid who's having difficulty and you encourage them, you can do it, you can do it, Johnny, and they do it. And you say, right on, Johnny, and you encourage that pride because that pride then will build confidence. And confidence is extremely important in life and on a spiritual path. So you're using, you know, these things. But ultimately, all pride is false pride. We really have to, you know, make this distinction that the Buddhists particularly are quite clear about. There's relative truth and there's absolute truth. And relative truth has its place. And relative truth is relative because it's relative to the situation in which you're working. And when the situation changes, it's no longer true. Okay. So this afternoon, we're going to try transforming envy or jealousy into all-accomplishing wisdom. The all-accomplishing wisdom of virtuous action, to give it a full name. And here's what Longchenpa says. The arising of competitive thought is ordinary jealousy. By recognizing it, it is the primordial wisdom of accomplishment. So again, we come back to this simple principle of just have to recognize. Recognize. Yes. The arising of competitive thought is ordinary jealousy. By recognizing it, it is the primordial wisdom of accomplishment. So competitive thought is comparing yourself to someone else, you know. Oh, look, they're doing better than I am. Or they got what I would like. So, we can get some idea of this from ordinary experience. And let's take a hypothetical example. Let's say uh, you read in the papers that a classmate of yours from college, high school, has just gotten appointed to a high position in the Obama administration. They're going to be uh, Secretary of Housing and Welfare, whatever it is. And you went to school with that person. It did, really? Yeah. I mean, he's an undersecretary in Clinton, and he, he found this huge... I just... And how did you feel? I felt envious. Yeah, okay, good, wow! I was my debate partner, and I thought he wasn't very good. <laughs> <laughs> he's a wealthy man now, he's had all this governmental experience, and it's all righteous, he's doing all this labor activism. Unbelievable. Yeah. Just the other kind of... Just See, I'm psychic, too. You didn't know that. <laughs> okay, so there you go. I don't have to go any farther. <laughs> but now here's the interesting thing about it. So you could respond either with uh, envy and jealousy and even maybe a thought about, I hope he flunks. Or you could be inspired and say, if he could do it, I could do it. And so you get a taste of how the same incident provoked an afflicted emotion could also inspire a sense of all accomplishment. I could do that too. Now, what makes it afflicted is even if you have that response to it, chances are you're going to aspire 
for self-centered reasons. You want the success because then you want all the goodies that success has, and then that sets you up for failure and suffering and whatnot. But if you just had that feeling arise when you read about your friend, and it was simply uh, the energy of, wow, inspiration. Not for me, not that I could be successful like him. There's no comparison. It's just that feeling that anything can be done. So all we have to do is to, again, look into the feeling of envy or jealousy when it arises, and then identify the thoughts, the little story that goes, how come he got that or she got that and I didn't get that or, you know, whatever. Let those thoughts self-liberate and focus on just the feeling itself. And it's a kind of feeling like, um, you know, you want to dance. You want to just get up and dance. You ever felt just so good you just wanted to get up and dance? It's just that movement of energy to go out and do. This is why, you know, some people accuse mystics of being antisocial and they spend their lives in caves and all that. I don't know any mystic who just spent their life in caves. I mean, if they did, you wouldn't have heard about them. All the ones that I know, particularly the ones, the most famous ones, have literally molded civilizations. They've been teachers, they've been activists, they've been to spend their lives uh, just sitting around contemplating their navels. Where did all that energy to accomplish all this come from? They didn't do it to win awards. They didn't do it to be recognized. Where does it come from? So that's what we're trying to identify here. Here's what Lady Soigel says about this again. Know that envy and alienation are all accomplishing awareness. Efficiency and success have no other source than a bigoted mind that is quick to judge and hold a grudge. Isn't she great? Look behind jealous thoughts, and there is immediate success. Amaga City, Buddha of virtuous accomplishments. Did I pronounce that right? I did, wow. I think this is one of the first times I've spoken it in public. Okay, so, of course, just the way we've been doing before, you first have to pick a person. I don't know, you probably could, maybe you could pick an object or a situation, but it seems like envy or jealousy is usually with other people. Pick a person that has in the past, or even right now, if you've got uh, somebody up there in the Obama administration, somebody that you're envious or jealous of or have been, and we're going to do the same practice. I'm going to guide you for the first one. If nothing comes, fine. Just hang out in spacious awareness. Maybe a thought uh, will come to you like, gee, I wish I was Richard Gere or Sharon Stone. Then I could be rich and famous and be on a spiritual path. (laughs) And then you'd find a little envy or jealousy in there. The precept to invoke the uh, obvious one is integrity, not to take what does not belong to you, but another one that's perhaps even better would be charity. We start with not being possessive of people or things, and then the rest of the precept has a pointer of how you might use that all-accomplishing wisdom that is released when you transform envy or jealousy. Yeah. Describe the difference between envy and jealousy. 
You know, I like to define these things, but um, I don't know. You go look in a dictionary and there probably is some little difference. To me, they're pretty synonymous. Maybe the jealousy is you don't want them to have what they have, and the envy is you want to have what they have. Oh, that's good. I like that. Yeah, very good. Let's go with that one. Okay. <laughs> okay. So. Here we go. Let's begin with concentration to stabilize our attention. Now allow attention to expand into the field of bodily sensations.
attention to expand into the sound field. Becoming aware of sounds as they rise and pass. Tastes or smells present themselves, allow them to arise and pass. attention to expand into the sight field, becoming aware of visual phenomena. Become aware of phenomena in the mental field, thoughts, images, memories, as they arise and pass away. Finally, allow attention to expand to the total field of consciousness awareness, allowing all phenomena to rise and pass away without any grasping or rejecting. to hold attention still in any way. Just surrender that and relax into the sky of spacious awareness.
Now close your eyes and call to mind something someone did that made you envious or jealous. Recall as vividly as possible what happened until a strong feeling of envy or jealousy arises. memory or the thoughts which arouse this envy or jealousy self-liberate and focus your attention on the pure feeling itself where in the body do you feel it stomach heart throat feels knotted or constricted, let go of the constriction and let the feeling flow throughout the body-mind. Feel it as the pure energy of all accomplishing wisdom.
this feeling of all-accomplishing wisdom dissolve back into the space of awareness from which it arose. Open your eyes and relax into that space. You've now reached the end of this talk. Continue practicing at least once a day until you are thoroughly familiar with these instructions. Then continue with the next talk for more teachings and instructions.